This podcast may contain explicit language and feel free to use explicit language when you review the gist on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. It's Friday, March 29th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The ride sharing app Lyft had a stock market public offering today. It was so successful that I propose we just start calling it Lyft and not the whole the ride sharing app Lyft. The internet search engine, Google. The discourse degenerator and civilization destabilizer, Facebook. I mean, do we really need all the qualifiers? We use these things every day. We know what they are. Do we call McDonald's the hamburger purveyor or IBM the business machine manufacturer? Lyft is just Lyft. We all know what Lyft is. And what Lyft is is less shitty Uber. That is indeed why Lyft was priced at $72 and immediately popped in the first moments of trading. The big issue is valuation, is how much it's worth. People have been wrong about these companies from day one. Lyft's market cap is now worth about $25 billion. And why? Well, I said it. It's because it's less shitty Uber. Not less shitty in terms of performance. Uh, As far as products go, I literally can't see a difference between those two things. And most of my Lyft drivers are also Uber drivers. It's like uh, how Hellman's mayonnaise is called, what is it called? Like Blue Bonnet or something west of the Mississippi. I mean, that to me is the difference. The difference between Coke and Pepsi is so much more pronounced. It's, It's Serb and Croat. It's Palestinian and Israeli. It's so much more pronounced than the difference between Lyft and Uber. I guess Uber is worth tons more money than Lyft, but Lyft has this nice niche as the less shitty Uber because Lyft's founder doesn't seem to be quite so much of a turd as the Uber guy. That's just the formula for success. There are a couple of these supposed unicorns, which are these uh, companies with a valuation of a billion, and you know Uber is worth tens and tens of billions, maybe hundreds, and they're all supposed to be, though, the Uber of something or the Netflix of something else. There's one that's the Uber of Spain and Portugal. That's one of these billionaires to come. There's even a new Netflix of podcasts coming down the pike. So I've got another idea. Just start a company and make it the less shitty version, the less mean and cruel version of the successful company that's out there. Uber, but less shitty. Google, but actually not being evil. Amazon with a union. Facebook run by an adult or a board of adults who don't share Zuckerberg's beliefs that his farts don't stink. You know, they might not stink, but they do set off a very serious process of introspection and asking how we can do better as we fart. You know... Just thinking about unicorns here. In mythology, unicorns weren't really nice. They gored you. They ran away. They can only be tamed by a virgin. What the hell kind of slut-shaming is that, unicorn? So I say what I have come up with, the less shitty version, that is the real path to tech success. If you agree with me, please reach out on less shitty Twitter, which is actually regular Twitter, but I've just blocked a bunch of people with two eagles and a flag in their name. On the show today, I spiel about the president. We knew he was a liar. I have argued that he's actually more a bullshitter than a liar. But now there is a whole other category to consider shitposter, POTUS, bullshitter or shitposter, a discussion you and your family won't want to miss. But first, there is a new film out about the terrorist attacks on Mumbai of 2008. It truly captures the geography of the attack and the setting and the stakes and some of the personalities involved. The director had actually never helmed a feature film before, which I couldn't believe when I heard it. 
but it's true. Anthony Maris has done documentaries. He's done shorts that also capture harrowing real-life moments, and he's always done them in a way that are powerful and real, and he does that with this movie, Hotel Mumbai, and director Anthony Maris, up next. Eleven years ago, the city of Mumbai was overtaken by terrorists who attacked multiple locations. There was a siege at the exclusive Taj Hotel that lasted many days and killed dozens of people. The events, specifically, of the siege of the Taj Hotel in Mumbai is the subject of the new film, Hotel Mumbai, from the director, and this is amazing to me, first-time feature-length director, Anthony Maris, an Australian, as you will hear. Hello, Anthony. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me on the show. So when I say first-time feature director, I've read some about your shorts, and you did a short called Palace or The Palace? The Palace was my most recent one. And it seems it seems similar in theme and maybe some of the techniques you would be bringing to this. Is that right? It was. Um, it was set during the 1974 Turkish invasion of Cyprus. We shot it on the UN Green Line that still divides this country in two. And uh, obviously, without you know, without knowing it at the time, it it um, it was a bit of a training ground for me and my team, many of whom came on to Hotel Mumbai. Right. So not only were many of the shots and much of the cinematography, I'm sure, similar, but there are two other things going on there, which is you had to pay fidelity to actual events mm-hmm. while being able to fictionalize to make a story around it. But two, lots of sensitivities. I mean, yeah. the 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 Turks and the Greeks, uh, and we're speaking on Greek Independence Day, so happy Greek Independence Day. The Turks Turks and the Greeks are um, as at each other's throats as any uh, nationalities or ethnicities can be, and it's the same thing with the Pakistanis and the Indians. So let's just talk about that. How did you you go about making this film, which wasn't primarily for an Indian audience? How How did you make sure that it would ring true and accurate and fair to the Indian audience that lived through it? Um, well, first of all, the intention wasn't just for the Indian audience. It was really for international audiences because the Taj is a very international place. Right. And, um, you know, it came down to research. We spent a lot of time hitting the pavement, talking to a lot of survivors, both guests and staff at the Taj Hotel, but as well as many other attack sites throughout Mumbai. The the fact-finding that you did to put this movie together, is that because there was a paucity of great uh, journalism about it? Because I have to say that compared to especially uh, terrorist activities in the West, I have come across less just less knowledge. I can't, we're not sure. Mm. I mean, we think that the LET was behind it, but they're not as sure of that as they were that Osama bin Laden was behind the 9-11 attacks. And I just, there still is, to my mind, um, this this opaque quality about what really happened uh, during that attack. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a, you know, very clear distinction between what happened in Mumbai and most other terror attacks. It's that in the case of 9-11, they were sudden, you know, the planes went into the buildings and they came down. I know it didn't happen instantly, right. but it was it was a thing that happened and then it was dealing with the aftermath, whereas the the whole design of the Mumbai attacks was something that should be sustained in, in terms of the handlers and the organizers that did this for as long as possible. And the chief of the anti-terror squad was actually gunned down within the first hour of the attacks happening, as is depicted in our film. And so it was, it was chaos. Now, because of that, it meant that 
this whole thing went on for 68 hours and many people were affected by it and many people were living through it who had mobile phones. So you had literally thousands of people caught up in different parts of Mumbai calling their friends, messaging them, the media was calling them. You know, in some cases they were broadcasting you know, live interviews from within the building as the attackers were were there. Yeah. And then the handlers were watching this stuff and then telling the gunman, look, go and find them in such and such a place. So it was this weird kind of uh, cycle. Yeah. And because of that, a lot's known about it. Another reason that a lot's known about it is because there was a court case. The One of the gunmen lived, unlike uh, 9-11. And the film is a, a, a culmination of this research process. Like at the outset... We didn't know whether – I didn't know whether it was going to be a single protagonist story, a multi-protagonist story. In the end, I think because we – my co-writer, John Colley, and I learned mm-hmm. about these attacks through all these different sources, you know, we felt that the best way to, to explore, you know, what, what went on in those days was through a multitude of perspectives, which collectively gives the audience a, an idea of what happened. Many details such as th- how slow the police were to respond and how the main anti-terrorism unit was in New Delhi and not Mumbai, which is eight hours away, and the ineffectiveness of uh, the response on the ground, all true, and also elements either perhaps specifically but broadly speaking, of the heroism of the people inside the hotel, also broadly true, but then you invented a couple of characters to tell the story through, is that it? Not quite. Okay. Um, it was. It's far truer to fact than that. Mm-hmm. We, we made a decision early on to alter the biographical details of some of the people we wanted to have as characters. The, what happens to them specifically happened to real-life people. Mm-hmm. It's just we changed their biographical details, the countries they came from and, you know, some facts about them. In some cases, we amalgamated their stories. So Dev Patel character, for instance, really was based on an actual person who um, shepherded many people out of the ground floor restaurants to safety. Um, but then the, there's another element of this character where he joins forces of the police and helps them up to a CCTV room so they could try and get a look at what was going on in the hotel. All that happened, that was a different staff member, so we we put both of those uh, those storylines together. Right. So, so that's good. Two Indians now walking around saying, I was portrayed by Dev Patel rather than one. Yeah, there that's you cool. go. <laughs> Two for one. And in fact, I mean, this is a two-hour movie and a lot is going on and there's a lot of information and it doesn't even really address most of what went on that day. No, it's yeah. specific. More people were killed in the train station than in the hotel. Exactly, yeah. and we weren't interested in the deaths. We were interested in the response to it. And right. the, you know, what happened in the Taj, where it was so extraordinary, is because you had everyday people who turned up to work. They turned up to work to do what they did every day, which is yeah. to care for others. And then the bombs started dropping and the bullets started flying and something extraordinary happened which was these people who were just there to work, instead of fleeing and running out of the hotel, because they knew the way out, the staff knew how to get out, it's a huge hotel, they didn't. They remained to protect one another, to protect their fellow staff members and to protect their guests. I've been here 35 years. This is my home. I'm staying too. I'm staying too. I'm with you, sir. I'm with you, sir. Me too. Guest is God, sir. In some cases, the staff members had made it out of the building, shepherding guests out, and they turned back and went back inside. And there's a um, your listeners might be interested. There's a there's a great article by the Harvard Business Review who sent a team of psychologists to Mumbai to try and find out the same thing I was trying to explore. What was it about this workforce? What was it about the staff of the Taj Hotel, where not just one or two, but on mass they decided to be there for one another? Mm-hmm. And you know these aren't just Hindus. 
These are Muslims. These are Christians. These are atheists, people of all stripes from, from disadvantaged backgrounds, from poor backgrounds, put into the middle of this uh, atrocity. And something kind of magical happened, which is all these barriers that usually divide people evaporated. And, you know, you really see if people, you know, give the film a chance and have a look at it, you see how people, you know, um, came together despite all these differences and were stronger for it. And even though it's tragic that 32 people died, there are over 1,500 people caught in that hotel that were that were in there at the time. And it's kind of a, it's a testament to the courage and the, the smarts and the resilience of the, of the people trapped in there that so many could be saved. Yeah, and I think that... The fact that these hotel workers were so often risking their lives to save people who were from a higher, were more advantaged than they were, that says something. I don't know how it plays in 2019 against the backdrop of, say, American politics and Mm -hmm. class resentment. But to me, the idea that I got is that these were people who more or less lived by a code that they believed in. Mm -hmm. And they were going, and this code was going to extend itself in the most extreme of circumstances. Well, India is a, is a country of great hospitality. It goes yeah. back to ancient times. And, you know, if you're in my house, I must protect you. And the Taj workers, you know, it's their home. You know, some of them have been there over 30 years, multiple generations. And another thing to mention about, you know, the Taj where it's so special, the whole reason the Taj was built was because the founder of the Tata dynasty who opened the Taj Hotel he wasn't allowed into the British establishment clubs in Mumbai in the latter part of the 1800s. He said, okay, I'm not going to be allowed in your um, clubs. I'll make my own. And so it was built the Taj Hotel, which from day one accepted everyone. Everyone was welcome. And more than that, this family, Tata Group, who owned the Taj and many other things. The cars, right? They own the cars. They own yeah. Land Rover. They own Jaguar. They own you know, many, many huge, uh, you know, huge companies. They have kept less than 1% of the um, of their majority stake in this massive conglomerate for themselves. They've they've put over 90 90% over 99% of their uh, their their interest in trust forever uh, for the betterment of the people of India. So even though it's run as a for-profit company, a lot of the profits and the dividends go to building hospitals and engineering colleges and all this sort of stuff. So it's you know to work there is is uh, you know it's a huge badge of honor. Um, in fact, one last really quick little story. Our producers, our Indian line producers, you know, some of the best in India. They did Slumdog Millionaire. They did Zero Dark Thirty. They did Life of Pi. And the, the guy who runs it is Pravesh Sani. He's got a son, Pranav, who's 25. And uh, Pranav is as smart as anyone you ever meet in filmmaking despite just being 25. And for some bloody reason, he knew all of the intricate details of the Taj Hotel. And he was going through my script and we are talking. He's like, well, look, this is a little different. And you've got to change this and blah, 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 blah. How the hell do you know all of this? And he goes, well, I worked at the Taj. <laughs> and I said, "What? why? Like your father owns this big company. You want to be in film? And Pravesh jumped in. And he goes, I'll tell you why. He goes, the filmmaking is a fickle business. You don't know what's going to come the next day. And I wanted my son to have backup. And so two years at the Taj is a symbol to everyone in India that he makes it there. He's got integrity and he can hack it and he's smart and all of this stuff. So it's by American eyes, it might be seen as, you know, the uh, – poor serving the rich, but there's more complexity to it than that in India. Did you ever think of becoming a journalist instead of a filmmaker? My question is- I did actually, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I really did. But why did it channel itself into filmmaking? Um, I always um, I always love history and I always love film. And I, I grew up hearing um, a lot of stories from my own family who were refugees themselves. 
um, from far earlier conflicts. Um, my, uh, my grandfather's in a concentration camp when my dad was a kid and he was horrifically tortured. He, um, he was in there for many years. Where? Uh, in Greece. Yeah. Uh, as he was uh, in the Greek Civil War. He fought Nazis and then, uh, then he was rounded up by a, you know, right wing fascist uh, type uh, dictators in Greece in the, um, in the early 50s. So my dad was a kid. For eight months, my uh, my grandmother didn't know where he was. She thought he'd vanish off the face of the earth. And uh, he used to say to me, Anthony, come here. You know, hit my hit my uh, ribs here, and they were strong. And he goes, all right, touch this side of my body, and I'm now hitting the other side of my body. There's nothing there. And it was because he was beaten so badly the first day he went into the concentration camp that when he woke up, some of the inmates had found him amongst some other people who had died. Yeah. And, uh, and there was a doctor amongst them, and he said, well – you're going to get uh, septicemia if we don't pull out the rig fragments, so we've got to operate. He said, well, are we going to operate? We're in jail. And it was on a camp on this island called Micronisos. And uh, so with the same tools that they used to, um, you know, make boots on this island, they cut him open in the middle of the night with no anesthetic, the prisoners did, and took out these rib fragments, stitched him back up. And, um, and he said, you know, Anthony, this is why Australia is such a good country because this stuff will never happen here. Unfortunately, he wasn't entirely correct. There was no torture on, of that kind in Australia, but there was a different type of torture. And um, and these sort of stories from my own family, I, you know, they have an effect on you. You hear these things from all sides of the family. They went through similar things. And, uh, you know, so in one way or another, I was interested in exploring these things, stories about people trying to overcome uh, adversity and hardship. And um, and journalism was, you know, was a factor. But, you know, I love movies and I think that the human experience is a different way that people can get insight other than facts and figures. You know, placing yourself in the shoes of the other, I think, is important, not just for entertainment's sake, but as a way that we as people get along. It's it's the way that we know about the world, like even subconsciously stories are how we know about the world. Right. I love them. So where do you see, I mean, there's a through line between the types of projects you've done. This is your first feature film, and it's quite an accomplishment. What kind of movies do you want to do? Where do you see this thing going? I, look, I'm not married to be doing these sorts of movies forever. I, I you know, I had a trajectory, which yeah. just, uh, you know, you no know, one, I, I don't know, if my, maybe other people do. I don't know why I picked the films I picked. It, it's kind of just an impulsive decision, really. But the, the impulses seem to be lining up in a certain way. They had, you seem to be drawn to certain material. I, look, I am. I mean, I guess it's. Um, I'm drawn to the idea of people who are put under pressure and seeing how they respond to it. You know, these are heroes who've never thrown a punch, who never fired a gun. You know, who don't say shitty one-liners. You know, these are real events, and um, and uh, you know, I think their example, you know, should be known. And I think there, you know, there's there's wisdom to be learnt from what they went through. But to be honest, uh, I don't want to do something uh, about terror or about violence even next. I'd, I'm Hopefully we'll do something that's uh, a moving story with good characters, but you know, I want to sort of explore some other things too. Anthony Maris is the director of Hotel Mumbai. It opens on March 29th, wide in the United States. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you so much. And now the spiel. We knew the president was untruthful. 
was false, was in fact a liar. The Washington Post counts 9,179 lies, whereas I think the more authoritative and strict, harder, harder judge, Daniel Dale of the Toronto Star, puts it at 4,682 false claims. But is he a liar? Yes, he is. But is he maybe more of a bullshitter? What's the difference? Well, this is laid out in a seminal text on bullshitting. It's the name of it. Liars engage in a conscious act of deception, whereas bullshitters don't consciously deceive. It's just kind of part of them. Liars know the truth and they go to lengths to hide it. The president doesn't really do that because a bullshitter does not care about the truth. And liars spread untruths, but you can call them on it and they still, they know and they can be held to account because they accept the distinction between the truth and what is false. Bullshitters ignore and reject that distinction. But now we got a new word and maybe a new way to look at the president, the shit poster. First, before I get to shit poster, I'm going to lay out the case that the man is a bullshitter. So I'm going to play an anecdote, although if it's really mostly fiction, that the president has been relaying at rallies. And he's talking about the Green New Deal. And then he gets to talking about Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii. Here's what he said last night in Michigan. She didn't know about the Green New Deal. And they hit her. And she's from Hawaii. What do you think of the Green New Deal? It was just put up by the Democrats. Well, I like it very much. But she never saw it. Then they said, but you can't fly anymore. And she's in Hawaii. She said, but how would I get to my island? Now, this anecdote, this mischaracterization, it has changed over the years. And I think it's changed in a way that indicates more bullshitter than liar or shit poster. So let's go back in time. Here was Trump, same basic anecdote at the CPAC conference four weeks ago. And she didn't know too much about the plan because she's, you know, she can't understand that plan. <laughs> Which probably makes her smart, actually. Now, this is the senator from Hawaii, and they're saying to her, what do you think? Well, I don't know how people are going to get to Hawaii, but I'm in favor of the plan. I don't care. I don't get it. I don't get it. That is closer to what happened. I mean, what really happened. Because what happened, so far as we could tell, is Hirona was asked about the Green New Deal. She said something like, I support its goals. It was pointed out, you know, if you implement it, the planes to Hawaii thing will be a problem. And she acknowledged that. In fact, she may have acknowledged that. We, we can glean this through tweets. She may have acknowledged that before the questioner ever even uh, pointed it out. So what she was saying, as far as I could tell, is I support the goals of the Green New Deal. Uh, let's not get crazy here because we know that if they were implemented tomorrow, it would be hard for me to find a way from my home state to my job. Or maybe she was saying something like, come on, don't tell me that it plans to eliminate planes. I'm from Hawaii. I'm not going to sign on to something that eliminates planes. All right. So with that in mind, we've heard two iterations of this anecdote, but here's the first time that Trump related on the big stage. It was a big rally in February in El Paso. Here he is debuting the Maisie Hirono bit. It would shut down a little thing called air travel. How do you take a train to Europe? You know, this, this crazy senator from Hawaii they said, do you like it? Yes, I like it very much. Oh, really? How are we getting to Hawaii on a train? So I think what's going on here is that Trump 
has the broad strokes or the bullet points of an idea. And that has nothing to do with the truth. He doesn't want to lie about it. He just heard these things having to do with planes and Hirono and the Green New Deal, and he wants to put them together in a way that's appealing to his audience. The first time that he said it in El Paso, that's the last one you heard, the nouns are close to what happened, but the details, I'm not going to call them details, the, uh, the facts as he asserted swerve greatly from the actual facts. Actual Senator Hirono asked about the provisions that eliminate air travel, said, well, that'll be pretty hard for Hawaii, won't it? Like, we as rational people on this earth know that I'm not going to support such a thing. But she's saying something like, look, it's a good goal and we need to get there. All right. So president, first time, El Paso, tries a version where Maisie Hirono is essentially stupid. She doesn't understand that her state would be isolated without air travel. And that worked pretty well. But in the second version at CPAC, he pulls it in a little and tried to stick closer to the fact. Maybe he was trying to get a laugh without having to do such a fictional deviation. But it doesn't really work. It's a muted reaction. He is exactly like a comic trying bits out on the road. The facts do not matter, immaterial to the goal, which is to tell a story and get a reaction. And, and so we see that reaction work pretty good in El Paso. He pulled it back, less good at CPAC. He went more for a lie and a ridiculous piece of emphasis last night in Michigan. So that's bullshitter, bullshitter, bullshitter. Aha. But now we come to the idea of the shit poster. I'd literally, I don't think I'd heard the term before the Auckland shootings. The shooter there gave out this manifesto and the term that attached itself to it was shit poster. He said a bunch of things he didn't mean. He said a bunch of outrageous things. He maybe mixed it in with things he did believe. I didn't read the whole manifesto. I read excerpts and I was told it was shit posting. I looked up what shit posting means. It means, quote, posting large amounts of content of aggressively, ironically, and trollishly poor quality in an online forum or social network, in some cases intended to derail discussions that otherwise make the site unusable to its regular visitors. Well, change site to country, and that is what Donald Trump is doing whenever he goes out and makes a speech. That's what he's done to the American conversation. That's what he's done to discourse in general. He's shitposting. There is an element of shitposting that's exactly like shit-talking or talking trash. He does that too. But there's also the element of shitposting that is just saying random things and doing it to get people mad. Trump always does that. I think he was engaged in that when he said this. I support the Great Lakes. Always have. They're beautiful. They're big. Very deep. Record deepness, right? No, they're not actually literally geologically deep. Also, the word is depth. And also, you don't support them. Your budget called for defunding much of the Great Lakes initiative. So should we consider what he said a lie? Uh, Should we think that it's bullshit? If it's a lie, what's the use of the lie? Why does he say record deepness? Well, to me, that is an argument of trollishly poor quality. Here's another definition of shitposting. Shitposting are posts that are meant to be awkward and irrelevant, mm -hmm, aggravating and distracting social media communities. Take out social media, just change it to national, uh, distracting us all from discussing the topic at hand. So I guess by talking about how the word is depth, not deepness, and so forth, I fell into the presidential shit trap of the shit post. And then we get to the real shit talking about Trump antagonist Adam Schiff. Little pencil neck Adam Schiff. 
What is that? If not shit posting, lie, truth. I, I haven't measured Adam Schiff's neck size. It does seem like it's obviously meant so that someone like me uses a word like waddle or a phrase like country ham in relationship to the president's own neck. And then we'll go down that road. This will engender right wing pushback. And that's shit posting. We have all been shit posted, have we not? Maybe I'm overthinking this. Maybe it's just a poor communicator, and it's not as important to nail the exact taxonomy of his dishonesty as it is to just call it out. We might be mislabeling the species of lie so long as we know the phylum is invertebrate and the kingdom is, I think, Saudi Arabia, right? I've given up on our president inspiring us to lofty heights. I am not so naive as to think he will provide steady guidance to keep things even keeled. But with every public utterance, I've come to hope that our commander-in-chief won't submerge us yet again in the cesspool. This is a hope that has not borne out. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Daniel Schrader and Pierre Biennemé. Biennemé, Biennemé. Can you believe that guy's neck size? It's totally lacking wideness. T.J. Raphael, a senior producer of Slate Podcast. Before that, she was the moderator of a nautical online forum where she had to keep very close track of all the ship posting, also the trawling. And do you know this? May 5th is the fifth anniversary of The Gist. We want to come up with some special programming, and I'm going to ask you, the listener, to help me. What I'd like to do is solicit from you guys, the listener, uh, nominations for great segments or great interviews, or this is really important, a argument or thought that changed your mind. Sometime the gist changed your mind. And call us and leave a voicemail, and we'll dig it out of the archives and maybe play it. The number is 347-960-6314. And I'm not going to read it twice because that's a radio thing and you could rewind. See how, see how the medium has changed? The gist. If you don't already, we suggest you listen to What Next? Mary Harris is very good at what she does. She's a very empathetic listener. We're kind of pitching it as the less shitty gist. I think the IPO for that one's ready to happen. Oomperu, depperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.